Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. My newest guest is General Sir Richard Shiriff, former NATO Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe. Among other things, I ask him who is winning the war in Ukraine, why the writings of Clausewitz and Sun Tzu are still relevant, how an army general views the humanitarian aspects of war and the risks of conflict between nuclear powers. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. If Europeans had become complacent about war on their doorstep, we certainly have had a rude awakening since the 24th of February. Over 2,000 civilians dead, more than 5 million refugees, 5 million, and I'm not sure that these figures have been verified, 5 million people, that's about the population of the German-speaking part of Switzerland. In March of 2017, I had as my guest on this show one of the top generals in NATO and who, on his retirement from the British Army, wrote a novel, a work of fiction, entitled War with Russia. My guess is that he takes grim pleasure in see, seeing his predictions come true, at least to some extent. But I'm delighted that he's found time to join me via Zoom from England, because I know he's in great demand on TV and radio, not only in the UK, but in many countries around the world. My guest today is General Sir Richard Sheriff, NATO De Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe from 2011 to 2014. General Sheriff, Richard, if I may, grateful thanks for making time for me and our listeners to the McKay interview, and welcome back. Thank you very much, Michael, and it's, it's very good to see you again and good to be back with you. Richard, we're going to talk about war and armies. I read recently an article by our mutual friend, uh, Professor Julian Lindley French, in which he reminded the reader of Stalin's words, everyone imposes his own system as far as his army can reach. Now, this war in Ukraine, who's winning? Or is it too early to say? And what do you think the eventual outcome will be? What will that depend on? And what will or could victory for whoever comes out on top look like? Uh, it, it, it is too early to say, Michael, but I would say from what we see at the moment that Ukraine has got and increasingly got the upper hand, um, which is a remarkable achievement because I have to say when the attack was launched on the 24th of February, I think most of us assumed that despite knowing that the Ukrainians would fight like tigers, we assumed that the Russian army was better than it is. And what we have seen is a remarkable uh, feat of military uh, professionalism and bravery and courage from the Ukrainians. Uh, they have they've not only been extraordinarily brave, they've been resilient, they've been clever, uh, and they have taken the fight to the Russians and stopped them dead. So they stopped them dead in the battle for Kiev uh, and, 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 in, and, and inflicted a significant defeat on the, the Russians. Uh, they they have they have won the battle of Kharkiv and pushed the Russians back from the the boundaries of Kharkiv right up to the border, uh, and it looks to me as if they are succeeding in in the battle of the Donbass. At least while the Russians might be making incremental progress in some areas, I think the uh, the Russians have given up their attempts to seize Donetsk. Uh, against that, of course, we know that they have finally the Russians have finally captured Mariupol after the most extraordinarily courageous siege of uh, three, three months of fighting in the most intense conditions. 
Um, and of course, the Russians also have got the Black Sea ports, which is going to have a major economic effect on Ukraine and on the export of, of grain. Mm -hmm. But I think overall, what we're seeing is the Russians beginning to run out of steam. I think that they are they have suffered massive casualties. The British intelligence assess the invasion force has been written down by about a third. They're finding it very difficult to generate the manpower capabilities. They're having to use mercenaries uh, and, and, and others to reinforce uh, battalions. And as a result of that, their, their, their capabilities, their units will be losing cohesion. Whereas on the other side, Ukrainians uh, have got, have announced, you know, are quite clear, they can raise an army of a million men and women under arms if they need to. And they're fighting for their country, they're fighting for their homeland. And they very firmly have the moral edge. We're going, to, we're going to dig into a number of the things that you've said, Richard, as we progress our conversation, but just to step back a little bit, to my non-expert eye, there are two great names that stand above others when referring to military strategy. Sun Tzu, the great Chinese thinker and military strategist who lived around 500 BC and wrote The Art of War, of whom I read General Douglas MacArthur, the Allied Supreme Commander 45 to 51, said, I always keep a copy of The Art of War on my desk and Karl von Clausewitz, the 19th century Prussian general and military theorist, his book von Krieger on war was written in 1832, almost 25 years after the defeat of Napoleon. Best remembered for his pronouncement, war is a continuation of polit politics by other means. But Clausewitz made a distinction between judicious and injudicious war, and the relationship he detected between war and politics really means that war can be waged only in certain circumstances. Now, here's what I wanted to ask you. Let's stand back a little bit from what's happening in Ukraine at present. Could you tell me what truths about war, before we go into the detail, what truths about war did these two great thinkers, almost 2,000 years between them, articulate, and why are they still read today and used as set books at Sandhurst and West Point and other leading military academies around the world? Well, the writings are timeless. The writings of Sun Tzu and, and Clausewitz are timeless. Um, and it would be impossible in the time we've got available to unpack everything that they say. But it, encapsulated in those, in those pages are so many, so many truths um, about this fundamental part of the human condition, war. Um, and I have to say, you know, we, we, we live in a, we have an assumption that somehow peace is the default setting. But if you look at the sweep of, of history, uh, war is almost certainly the default setting in international, in, in human affairs. Um, I think from, 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 from Sun Tzu, um, I think I draw one overriding truth here. I mean, I think one of my favorite line from Sun Tzu is his line that strategy, or something along the lines of strategy without tactics is the slow road to victory. Tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. Uh -huh. And I think that is so true. It's as true in business It's in true as, as it is in warfare. Uh, but what we see with Russia is a failure of strategy. Uh, and they have thought tactically. They have launched an attack. They've launched multiple attacks without thinking through their strategy, without effective command and control, and without an army that is capable of carrying it through. And when you're talking about strategy, strategy is the art of, of, of integrating ends, ways, and means to achieve your ultimate goal, which means that if you, if you, and you have to think right to left here, you have to think, where do I want to get to? And 
what are the pathways to get me along that route to get to, to my destination? And it's about balancing the how I do it with the resources that I've got available. And clearly, Russia has failed to do that. So I think that timeless line about strategy, tactics without strategy, is the noise before defeat, applies in spade loads, in war and in peace, particularly in business. Thank you. I think Kreisowitz, um, the, the, there's, a, there's a particular line from Kreisowitz here, which I think is so relevant. And Kreisowitz described... He described the nature of war unchanging, the, the province of, of uncertainty and chance, uh, and of course, the fog of war. But he said the character of war is infinitely changeable. And the trick uh, and the key point, the key duty of a commander, he said, is to understand the character of the war upon which he is engaged or about to engage, because every war is different. And as we all know, the generals are often accused of trying to fight the last war. It's about understanding the character of the war on which, uh, on which the Russians engage. And again, I think they failed completely to do that. They failed to understand the importance of, of, of information. Uh, they failed to understand the importance of, of building uh, support among the people. They failed to understand the impact of modern weaponry such as drones, cyber, and the like. And what you saw there was a, 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 an old-fashioned, particularly in the Battle for Kiev, an, an old-fashioned force of uh, heavily, heavily armoured without any form of proper, true combined arms integration uh, come to grief against a very clever Ukrainian defence. So I think both those authors remain relevant to the present day. Richard, I don't mean this to sound like a naive question, um, but I'm not a military man at all. I've never served in the armed forces. But what does it take to win a war? I mean, what are the components and dimensions to win militarily, politically, diplomatically, psychologically, physically, emotionally, even financially? Maybe I've missed an important descriptive element. You and your former position must have come into contact with all manner of leaders in these different areas. Um, how do you see it through the lens that you look at these um, matters of conflict between states and nations? What does it take to win a war? Well, in in uh, in essence, I, I mean the simplistic way of putting it is that it's about getting getting more military, getting more capability to the right place at the right time to overmatch your opponent. But it's more than that. It's about targeting the mind of the of your opponent so that that your opponent recognizes that ultimately he or she can never can never succeed. I think in your list of, uh, of, 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 of points, I would add morally as well. Morally, um, yeah. I mean, I always, you know, I think that line from Napoleon about the moral is to the physical is three is to one. You have to have right on your side. Uh, now, clearly, it doesn't always happen. Hitler did not have right on his side in 1939, 1940, 1941. And he ultimately paid the price for that in 1945. Putin has not got right on his side, and he will pay the price for that. Ukraine absolutely has right on its side and will succeed as a, as a consequence of that. And Putinism will be defeated eventually. It will take time. Uh, but it's a complex business. But ultimately, and I think speaking to you in the city of Geneva, which in a sense tried to codify and very successfully codified the rules, the laws of war, thinking humanitarian, it's appropriate that we remember the morally side. 
and I think the moral side as well, the importance of, of, of being morally right. Thank you. My guest today is General Sir Richard Chirif, NATO Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe 2011 to 2014. Richard, you, you, you've touched on it. Yes, I am. I'm not actually in Geneva, but I'm very close to the city. I live near to the quintessentially humanitarian city, home of the Geneva Conventions and the Red Cross, as you said. I want to ask you about civilian, Richard, in war. Nowadays, civilians are variously called by some, not all, terrorists, insurgents, or even Nazis, when convenient to use those descriptions. What is a civilian in your experience? What can or must armies do to protect them? And I mean essentially, but not exclusively, the elderly, women, and children. And as a corollary, what are the constraints placed on you, speaking as a, as a former military general, by international humanitarian law and the laws governing the sovereignty of nations? Well, a civilian, I think, is somebody, anybody who is not wearing wearing uniform, carrying arms, and 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 and, and signed up in a, you know, as, as as part of a constituted, constitutionally constitutionally constituted army. Um, but of course, that covers a, a a huge range. So, for example, insurgents fighting uh, some of the Iraqi or Afghan insurgents that uh, that we operated against would be would qualify as civilians in the sense that they were not members. Of, of a formal army. Um, but I think the wider point about the, I, I, the civilian population is so important here because as soon as we knew, as soon as Putin invaded on the 24th of February, we knew we were going to see massive, it, would, it was a catastrophe on a massive scale for the civilian population of, of Ukraine, uh, as, as, as you have outlined, millions of refugees. And I, I'm afraid to say, hundreds of thousands killed. I think the figures have yet to come out um, and, and are much, much worse than, than the figures you gave us at the beginning. Um, so what does this impose on military commanders? Well, I think the reality of war in the 21st century is that it is, this is something the Russians have completely failed to understand, is that it is war among the people. Commanders what do you mean? Just, just explain what you mean. What have they, what have they failed to understand? I didn't quite follow you. They fail to understand that warfare is warfare among the people. And by that, I mean that it is conducted principally in the land environment among civilian populations who have a say in this, in the sense that if by our actions as military commanders, we alienate the people, then we gift the advantage to our adversary. I'll give you a good example. I was talking yesterday to a, a Ukrainian interlocutor, a, a, a good a contact who I, I, I get in touch with on a fairly regular basis. She is telling me that the way the Russians have behaved to the civilian population in the Russian separatist held areas of Donetsk and Lugansk have alienated the civilian population. They have imposed rigorous and ruthless conscription on them. The young men have, to, have gone into hiding to avoid being conscripted by the Russians. Now, these are people who in 2014 supported the Russian separatists and supported what was effectively a Russian invasion. They are now against, they have now come out against the Russian in occupiers. The Russians, it's put simply, any military force has got to win and maintain hearts and minds in order to, and, and unless you do that, you are not going to succeed. 
So this places, this means that all thinking in terms of campaign, campaigning has got to be, campaign design has to be people-centric. Uh, it's all about putting, doing what you can to protect the people. And it's a, in a sense, not only is it a moral, the right, the moral right thing to do, but it actually just make, it, it makes, makes military sense because why would you want to, to alienate people to, 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 to get them against you? You need their support. But let me ask you this now, because you talk, you, you raised the word moral and morality. What about um, contracts or treaties? If and when a wrong is committed, do those who support rights stand back until the weaker, attacked and aggrieved party is reduced to rubble? And who decides what wrong is? I have in mind, and you, you, I mean, sure, you'll, you, you'll easily guess what's in my mind, Ukraine's repeated plea to Western countries, a plea now stopped, I think, for the closing of its airspace and NATO's reluctance to offer its support to this specific request. So there you have the, to weigh up the balance between a treaty, in this case, the articles of NATO, and the morality of this country being, parts of the country being reduced to rubble. I, 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 and you put your finger on a very, very complex and difficult uh, dilemma, uh, Michael. Uh, and it was that dilemma that the United Nations tried to resolve with its uh, doctrine of, of, of right to protect. But the brutal reality of life and the brutal reality of war is that you can only protect if you are prepared to put the right means into play to protect. And you mentioned the whole issue of the no-fly zone. Yes, of course, on the face of it, uh, we should, there is a very powerful moral case for responding here. But I think we have to be, we have to be ruthlessly pragmatic at the same time and recognize that number one, Ukraine is not a member of NATO and is therefore not covered by the guarantee of collective defense. Number two, if NATO had got involved or would, would, would is going to get involved or is thinking of getting involved uh, by establishing a no-fly zone, it would be an act of war by NATO. It would bring NATO forces, NATO aircraft, into combat against Russian aircraft and against Russian anti-aircraft missiles, uh, missile batteries and, 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 and the like. Uh, and that would mean, effectively, that NATO would would have moved from being a, a defensive alliance into an offensive operation uh, and, and guarantee a, a wider war between NATO and Russia. And for that reason, the NATO alliance has very firmly held to its red line of no direct intervention. However, quite rightly, in my view, Western countries, NATO countries, and more broadly than the NATO alliance, have produced and are producing really significant amounts of military aid uh, to Ukraine the, and, uh, and are giving Ukrainians the tools to allow them uh, to finish the job. But of course, you are fundamentally right uh, that how could we possibly stand by and see cities like Mariupol reduced to ruins, uh, mass civilian casualties, massacres, etc. cetera. Um, only, only, we can only do something about it if we will the way politically, the will the means politically, and I see no prospect of that happening. And with all your knowledge and your contacts and your experience and your network of, of friends and fellow soldiers, you believe that NATO's resolve on defending its territory is absolute in this case? It is absolute, absolute. Uh, but in order to do so, NATO has to 
understand and remember the imperative of effective deterrence. Remember how the peace was maintained during the years of the Cold War. And I am absolutely convinced that the way that NATO prevents a hot war in Ukraine turning into a hot war across the rest of Europe is to ramp up its deterrent capability really significantly. We're going to come on to that a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Of NATO, and we've yet to see that. I want to ask a very special question, which you as a, a senior military officer would, would understand, and people like me just don't really understand, but we have a sense that there's something. In, what, in your experience, is the combat power of men and women of an army of a country when fighting for its very survival compared to an invading army not fighting for its survival or that of the territory of its motherland and perhaps not even inspired or motivated by the stated objectives of its leadership? It's mean, sort of a ratio of how determined a soldier will be when he's really got his back to the wall, defending his 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 family, his mother country. Uh, I don't want to make it sound too romantic, but I think you're trying. You can see what I'm trying. I'm driving at. You've well, led I've, men into war. You you must have seen this. Well, I've never led men fighting for their own homeland. I've led men in operations fighting in other in other parts of the world. Yes. 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 Um, but I go back to that, that line from Napoleon, the moral is to the physical as three is to one. Yes. If you have, it, you know, morale is fundamental. <coughs> what we have seen in the Russian army is a collapse of morale uh, and a failure of morale, a collapse of logistics, whereas the Ukrainians... Sorry, Michael, <laughs> we might have to cut that bit. Yeah. What, what we see with the Ukrainians um, is that they are fired up to defend their homeland. The Russians have got it completely wrong and they will do what needs to be done. And I am 100% sure that we will see the, the truth of Napoleon's maxim acted out in the months to come when the Ukrainians continue to push the Russians back. I had a question here about uh, the risks of deploying conscripts and new recruits uh, in an army, but in a way, I think you've touched on that. Um, and I think it's going to happen more and more. But what I didn't have in my preparatory notes is the balance, if you like, between all the fighting power of mercenaries, you know, men who fight for money, as opposed to young 18, 19 year olds who uh, are basically conscripted into an army, particularly one that they don't particularly want to go into. Um, if you have any comment on that, or we can just move on to the next question. Well, I think you know, merc mercenaries may have military experience, but there's a there's a there's a, they're, 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 they they will fight as you say. They fight for money. They're not bought into um, uh, they're not bought into the the cause, um, and they will go to whoever pays the right money. Um, and the other thing, of course, is but by employing mercenaries of the nature and sort that the Russians are employing. They, you, 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 you completely, you completely surrender the moral high ground when they behave as badly as as many of them have done, uh, which takes us back to that whole point about winning and maintaining hearts and minds. Richard, when you were last on my show, it was in March two thousand seventeen. You talked about the need for raising, and I'm quoting your words back at you, balance of risk to dissuade Russia from, as you said at the time, giving it a go. That was your phrase. Where did the West go wrong, Richard? Well, it didn't raise the bar of risk high enough to stop the Russians having a go. And they've had a go, and they are having a go. Um, uh, 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 <laughs> and what I was talking about then is as true now as it was then. 
that this is about NATO raising the bar of risk to prevent any further incursions uh, by Russia. I mean, I think reality now is that Russia is so fixed and on the back foot in Ukraine that it's unlikely. But if I go back to 2017, in fact, I'd go back further to 2014, when it was quite clear to me that Putin was planning what is now happening in Ukraine. Um, what we have seen in the West is a failure of deterrence. What we have seen is more like the 1930s with economically fairly strong countries, but politically weak and, and ratcheting back, cutting military capability on, a, on, a, on an almost existential basis, a sort of almost a semi-disarmament, particularly in Europe, uh, and a reduction in military capabilities by cumulative defense cuts. That has sent a very clear message to Putin. Add to that Obama 2013 in Syria, with the, the so-called red line over, over chemical weapons, and when that red line was, was crossed, Obama, Obama backed down. You add to that the years of Trump uh, and the contempt with which he treated, treated the NATO alliance and his alliance partners. Add to that the catastrophic collapse of the uh, the, the, the allied, well, what was a NATO mission in Afghanistan last year, when the rug was pulled under it uh, unilaterally by, 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 by President Biden. All of this will have gone into Putin's calculus uh, that the West is not going to do anything. The West will, will let me get away with it. In fact, go back further to 2008, uh, the Russian invasion of Georgia. The West and NATO, by returning to business as usual so quickly after that, let Putin get away with the thinking that it is a, he was going to get away with changing the borders of Europe by force. He got away with it in Georgia. He got away with it in Ukraine in 2014. Uh, and he thought he could get away with it in Ukraine in 2022. Richard, this might be uh, an impossible question, even for you as a, a retired general military, military strategist. But how can Ukraine regain and reestablish its sovereign border in and around Crimea? illegally invaded, as you said, by Russia in 2014, and also even to eject Russia from the Donbass region. What needs to be done militarily? Well, it's the right, I think that Ukraine is absolutely right to aim to expel every Russian from the borders of, 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 of Ukraine. And that would include the Donbass and Crimea. And in fact, the British Foreign Secretary uh, Truss, in a speech at the Manson Mansion House a couple of weeks ago, uh, stated that that should be that is the that is the war aim that the UK uh, the UK supports as well, which I think is exactly right. Uh, in order to do that, it's about generating the capabilities uh, and and using those capabilities in the way that will achieve ultimate victory for the Ukrainians. It means for the West, it means continuing and ramping up the flow of offensive weaponry into Ukraine, long range precision artillery, missiles, tanks, aircraft, air defense systems, uh, as well as other armored capabilities in order to allow and training as well, together with all the logistic support, the massive amount of ammunition uh, that is needed, uh, together with training the Ukrainians in how to use it. Now that takes time. But I am sure the Ukrainians are making the most of the time available to build up their military capability. They're holding the Russians now. They're pushing them back in certain places. They're inflicting significant defeat on the Russians in others. And incrementally, that will come together 
slowly to push the Russians back off their territory. Add to that the problems the Russians are facing internally with generating combat power. And I think that Ukraine is heading in the right direction. But ultimately, it comes down to being able to generate the capabilities required for offensive operation and ensuring that those are overmatching the defender and the Ukrainians are heading in the right direction. I've got a couple more questions before we close. A short one and one that maybe will take a little bit longer to answer. First, a short one. Now we've got the imminent prospect of a new and enlarged NATO. Has Vladimir Putin shot himself in the foot? I mean, this is the opposite of his professed objective, isn't it? Or alternatively, isn't his hand even strengthened from his point of view in the sense that when Finland, Sweden, even Moldova join NATO, he could say to his people, look, I told you so, now we are surrounded, at least to the West. Well, the first thing is he has completely shot himself in the foot. NATO is going to be stronger with Finland and Sweden and every NATO country. Uh, and Russia uh, will get, it's going to get more NATO on its borders and not less. As far as what he tells his people, frankly, uh, he will tell his people anything. And, and we just have to, we just have to ignore the propaganda myths that Putin propounds uh, uh, and focus on building up the strength of NATO. An unthinkable um, question, but my last question, but I have to ask you this because you've been close to this, having been a, at the senior command, war with nuclear powers, Richard. How do military people like you, working together with political leaders, calibrate or estimate the use of so-called tactical nuclear weapons? What inputs go into your equation about their use? Well, nuclear weapons present, represent the ultimate destructive force. Um, the principal equation that goes into thinking about their use is that they should never be used. And the way you prevent the use of nuclear weapons is through deterrence. <coughs> Being able to demonstrating that you can overmatch any potential adversary should they decide to go down that line. <coughs> Sorry, Michael, you're going to have to do a bit of cutting there. That's okay. No Hang on, I'm just going to take a puff of one of these. Um, so thinking about this nuclear weapons business, it's about deterrence, it's about overmatch, um, and it's about ensuring that the mind of your opponent has been influenced so that he is under no illusions that if he steps over the mark, he is going to be absolutely hammered in return. I actually, in this context, um, I think the prospect of the use of nuclear weapons, uh, and I'm being guarded here, but I am cautiously optimistic that the risks are reducing, that we have seen Putin's reluctance to escalate to by declaring war, which I think we expected could happen, uh, at his victory parade on the 9th of March. Um, and that didn't happen. So I think he blinked. And so I think he recognizes that the use of nuclear weapons would create even more, uh, an even more difficult strategic context for him than the one he faces at the moment. Thank you, Richard. Uh, your voice is held up. Thanks for answering my questions so fully and and also elucidating some of the complex issues for non-military people like myself and many, the majority of the people listening to this program will be in the same boat as me. My guest today has been General Sir Richard Sheriff, NATO Deputy Supreme Commander Europe from 2000 
11 to 2014. Thank you again, Richard, and go and drink some water. <laughs> Thank you very Thanks much. For your time. Thanks. Okay, great to talk. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you. And if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at mckays.ch. I promise that I will reply to you.